Well, hey, I don't normally start with kind of a, a few announcements, but I kind of am um, today on purpose as the kids are dismissed to head to Children's Church now. Um, and I remember that about half the time to say that. So um, that's pretty good. Like 50% is good in baseball, and that's about it. Um, but, but next week, starting actually, I guess this week, starting tomorrow, Monday through Friday, from 6.30 to 7.30, uh, we would invite you to come and be a part of prayer. And so we think how we live is to be a people of prayer. It's our desire. And so we're going to have uh, prayer night here in this room tomorrow night uh, through Friday for one hour. And so here's the format. If you're like, ooh, an hour, really long time. Uh, that is a really long time if you're just praying. And I don't mean that fully. But here's the format. We'll sing a couple songs together. We'll have a brief devotional thought. We'll have a few minutes of reflection and time of prayer. And then we'll kind of close with a corporate act of prayer together. And so uh, if you're going, well, we give you a prayer booklet. There's prompts to follow. It, it is much less time than you think it is. So hopefully you'll come and be a part of that. And then also uh, today, following the service, if this church is a church you call home, we're going to kind of have a reflection looking back and looking ahead in the gym right after this service. And so hopefully um, you will, you'll join us there and uh, be a part of that. And so we'll hopefully see you there after the service if you call this church home. If you don't call this church home or you're a guest or you're new, um, don't feel any obligation. We hope you'll be a part of that. Um, and so uh, I'm getting weird looks because my mic is going in and out. And so I don't know if that means I have to switch to another mic. So that's what we're doing apparently. So hopefully this one works. Uh, we'll find out. Um, well, that's always fun. So... Um, I don't ever know what happens when that happens, so we're going to just... So anyway, as I was saying, it's a new year. It's a new opportunity for us to live as a unique people. It's this opportunity we have that to say welcome to 2022 sounds weird, right? If you're like me, you will struggle to write 2021 for the rest of this year. And then by the end of the year, you'll get it right. And then we'll change years and you'll still probably get it wrong. Maybe you're someone who does a lot of New Year's resolutions. Um, I was talking to the owner at Chick-fil-A last week, and I said, hey, so how is business during the season? And he says, oh, we're really good until New Year's. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, uh, we'll be really slow for about the two weeks after January 1st. And I said, just two weeks? And he goes, yeah, because that's about how long people's New Year's resolutions last, that they're going to eat healthy, and then they come back. Um, and I said, well, you know, like, there's like grilled chicken here too. He goes, I know, I, I told people that, but it doesn't matter. It's just two weeks. It'll be fine. Um, because that's about what New Year's resolutions are like for many of us, right? I don't do New Year's resolutions because I don't want to fail at them. But what I will say is this. I'm all about learning new patterns and habits and new ways of living that might make my life better or might change who I am. Because I do believe this to be true. Habits are powerful things. What we do has an incredible impact on our life. In fact, um, today, if you're a guest with us and this is your first time here or second time here, here's a challenge we, we regularly give. Um, come five times. At the end of five times, you can kind of have an idea or an understanding of whether this is a place you want to call home and be a part of, or like, yeah, not really my, my place or my people. But give it five times because we really can't decide anything once. 
And so we'd encourage you to come again and again. But here's part of why I think habits and patterns matter so much. What we practice is who we become. What we practice is who we become. And we see this, whether it's learning a new skill, whether it's reading more books this year, we see it when it comes to learning to pray. Um, What we do more of often gets repeated more of. It's not like rocket science. If we continue to do one thing again and again, we repeat it over and over again. And I know some of you are going, well... um, we're talking about Christmas again today because that was so last year. That's like the best joke I can ever give. I even wrote that one down. But here's the reality for us. The season of Christmas continues until January 5th. But for us, here's what the challenge is. What might happen? New birth is a new opportunity. And so what might happen if we begin to change our mind and our heart and our lives and new patterns and habits developed in our life? Here's the reality for us. If we don't do anything new in our life, if we do the same thing we did before, then we can't ever use the phrase, new year, new me, because it's not true. We just have to say, new year, old me. But what might happen if we began to live into new and unique ways? What might happen if habits and patterns in our life changed? And so what might happen if we begin to look more and more like Jesus and the patterns and habits of our lives looked like his. Today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2 and continuing kind of this idea of the birth of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 2 is a fascinating chapter because what Matthew does all throughout this whole chapter is he tries to connect what happened in the Old Testament to things that are coming true in the New Testament. He might even stretch some things a little bit. As some scholars would argue, he's trying to put some things in there that we're kind of looking at going, I don't know if that's what that's happening. But either way, what Matthew does so well, he says, hey, listen, um, This is who God is. God is seen in Jesus, and we can see who this is. I love the way Roger Hahn, a scholar, talks about this particular passage. He says this, Matthew expresses a common conviction of the early church that Jesus represented all Israel and summed up in himself the promise of God to Israel. So if you're like me, you're like, okay, um, that's good. Matthew's wanting us to know that Jesus is fulfilling what God has already said God would do. So why does that matter? Because Jesus shows us God's character, and God's character is always consistent. Sometimes we get the character of God wrong. Have you noticed that? Sometimes you and I will say things about God and we'll go, you know, is that God or is that me? Is that who I am or is that who God actually is, right? One of the fascinating things through human history is if I were to show you pictures of Jesus throughout the centuries, what you would find is again and again, the pictures people would draw would reflect what was the common narrative or the common story of that day. Jesus would look like the dominant people of that day, not necessarily like the first century carpenter we find in the scriptures. But Matthew chapter 2 is a chapter filled with these characters, these people, And what I can't help but find as I read this, and as we're going to read it together today, is the question is this, will our character look more and more like Jesus's, or will it look more and more like those we find in this text? And so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the peoples, chief priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in his vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now, I'm going to point out something that you may or may not have caught in this story, and it's going to mess you up a little bit, uh, and that's this, that you notice the child may have been up to two years old when the Magi went to see Jesus. And so in all of our nativity scenes where we have those wise men or Magi, whatever you want to use to describe them, uh, we could probably take them out, and it would be just as accurate, actually more accurate. But I have good news for you. If you're going to leave them in your nativity set, no one really cares. Well, it's interesting, these wise men head from the east and they head to Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Well, it's kind of obvious, right? Where else would the king of the Jews be born? But when they get there, these magi or wise men, right? Who, who were they, right? They were basically priests of Persia. They would have been people that were philosophers and they would have been people who practiced, practiced science or medicine. That's who they were. And one of the fun things about this story is we have no idea how many of them came. It could have been 200. It could have been 20. It could have been three. We have no idea. We say three because there were three gifts, right? That's why I noticed there's no numbers there. We just, three sounds like a good number. 
So three of them, or more, or less, went to see Jesus. And when they went, they stopped to see Herod. Now, Herod was the king of the Jews, but Herod isn't the king in the way we think of kings. Herod was king because he suited the purposes of Rome. And so they placed him in power. Now, that's not to say that Herod didn't have power, because Herod definitely had power. In fact, he was notorious for his power. Herod was notorious for his paranoia and his violence. In fact, this is the same guy who had his mother-in-law killed and his wife and two of his sons. Because he was paranoid, they were trying to take his place. So this is the man the Magi went to see. And not only was Herod disturbed, but all of Jerusalem with him. Now, that's probably not that surprising, right? If this guy is disturbed and you are scared of rocking the boat of who he is because you have no idea what he might actually do, and that's what we see happens here. All of Jerusalem is disturbed with him because we never knew where Herod's anger might take him. And we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. But Herod does what anyone would probably do in his position. He goes to the scribes and the chief priests, and he asks them, hey, um, these wise men, these magi are here from the east. They're here to see this new king, and I want to worship him too. Where is he to be born? And on one level, the scribes and chief priests are, are like, well, you know, it says here that, you know, he, he's to be born in Bethlehem, and that's true. That's, that's in the scriptures. But you notice they're honestly kind of indifferent. They're indifferent to the birth of Jesus in many ways. And often what they would often do is they would interpret scriptures in the ways that suited them and their needs and their positions. And so I got to be honest with you. I think that's a temptation of yours and mine. The temptation is to read the scriptures in the way we want to see them, not the way they're actually written in context. So I'd say this, we must read scriptures in their context and not see in them what we want to see in them. Because too often we read and go, oh, well, that's what it says, but it's not at all what it means. And so what something means and what it actually says are often two different things. And so the scriptures are for us sometimes difficult to navigate because we try to just read it like a normal book, which we can't really do if we're honest. And so what we find is this, that as the wise men learn about Bethlehem, they make their way there. And when they get there, we see their reaction. They walk in. And they worship him. Right? They encounter Jesus, this young child, somewhere under the age of two. We don't know exactly, but we know he's under two. And when they do what is appropriate for all of us when you encounter a king, they bow down. But then they do something that's beyond what we would do for a king. They worship him. And they offer what would be appropriate for any king. You give a gift, the best that you have to offer. And gold makes sense to us because gold's still valuable. Gold was valuable then, and they give gold. And then they give these weird things, frankincense, right? Basically, it's a kind of a perfume. And they give myrrh, which is basically an embalming fluid, right? It's what they use. It's not a fluid, but embalming spice. You're like, well, that's kind of a weird gift. But it would have been appropriate. And so they give these gifts. And so frankincense is a gift you would give to priests. And it's appropriate that Jesus would be the one who is the bridge builder between us and God. Helps make a space for people to come to God in ways that matter. And then they give myrrh, right, this, this embalming spice. But it's also medicinal, has medicinal uses, but it's probably appropriate that Jesus is the one that when he dies, 
It changes everything. There's a little foreboding about what may come to his life. But then, then these wise men do something that's kind of unique. When they have encountered the one they think is going to change the world, this new king, not only did they worship him, but they didn't stay there. They left. And why is that unique? Because so often for many of us, we might hear something good and we keep it to ourselves. And so the wise men have embraced the idea that not only should worship be something we do to Jesus, but it should be the overflow of our life. We are called to be witnesses to what we have experienced. And so the question I have for you and I today is this. Have we lived in such a way that we're so wrapped up in knowing Jesus that we'd be witnesses to others about what we have come to know? And then the scene kind of jumps, and Joseph has a dream. And if I'm Joseph, I'd want to quit dreaming at this point. And he's supposed to leave and go off to Egypt because his son's not safe. And I was trying to think how I could give you a picture of what this might look like to go from Israel to Egypt. What, what in our day is comparable? What, what's a comparable thing to understand to leave as a refugee? And I would say it this way. It'd be like as if you were born in Mexico and you fled to the United States. It's a comparable kind of comparison here for us to understand. This is what Jesus has to do. And in fact, later in Jesus' life, he'd be attacked for his time as an immigrant, saying, like, you're not really one of us kind of thing. This is, the, this is what God walked into. And I can't help but think see glimmers of stuff we find in the Old Testament. What we see over and over again is a particular line says, make sure you take care of the widow and the orphan and the alien among you. You'll see that phrase dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. And why? It's usually a reference to the fact that the people of Israel were aliens in Egypt. But for us, it's a reminder that Jesus, too, was an immigrant. The scene we see continues out, and it goes to Egypt, right? The old old savior out of Egypt brought them to a new land and Jesus comes and is not going to bring them to a new land but to a new way of being to introduce them to new patterns and habits and ways of living to a land of faithfulness because that is who God is but we see in this story something that's so true for all of us when we live as the unique people of God when we lean into who God is it often messes up the balance of the way the world works It's what we see in the story of Herod. Herod is furious. He is so angry when the wise men don't come back to see him. He is is beside himself. And he does something that we know he's known for his violence and his paranoia. But he does something that seems so extreme to us. But in the ancient world, was not honestly that extreme. In fact, in Herod's own reign, it is so not extreme, it barely is a footnote. He had all the babies two years old, all the male babies two years old and younger, put to death in Bethlehem. And some of us are going, whoa, that must be, it's probably 20 to 30 children. I'm not diminishing that, but it wasn't hundreds and hundreds. That's why it's a footnote. Because when Jesus enters in, it messes up the systems of our world. It messes up the way things are. And then Matthew tries to connect this to a, a, a an event that happens in the Old Testament in Jeremiah where, where the young men of Israel were taken off into exile to Babylon. And so their moms are weeping because they are no more because they will not ever come home again. So this action of Herod wasn't out of character for him. It was who he is. But here's the reality for us. 
Jesus was born with a price on his head. He had to flee as a child. And I love this quote as I was reading through on this text. It says this, Before the Prince of Peace had learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. Why? Because when Jesus enters in, he exposes the limits of our power. He messes with the way things are in the world around us. He offers us an alternative vision for the world. He says, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, or he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's near. It's now. I love these words of Karl Barth, the theologian. He says this, Jesus is himself the established kingdom of God. I don't want to skip over um, the violence surrounding Herod and Bethlehem today. I, I, I've wrestled, so these, bear with me the next like five minutes or so. Uh, in fact, I, I would debate on cutting out this portion of my sermon about four times this week. Uh, I'd sent to Holly to read, and, and so she's like, well, I think it's okay. People might lose you in this, and I might miss the point of what you're trying to say holistically, but I think it's good. And so anyway, we're going to leave it because I want to talk about it for just a minute. So bear with me these few moments. Um, we see in this story a glimpse of what it looks like when evil and sin reign, and we see what happens when we live counter to the story God invites us into, when we forget to recognize that all people are created in the divine image of God. All people everywhere are created in the divine image of God. And so I want to share this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. It says this, The Gospel the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is not a consolation for those whose children are murdered. Rather, those who would follow and worship Jesus are a challenge to those who would kill children. The Herods of this world begin by hating the child, Jesus. But as Frederick Dale Bruner observes, end up hurting and murdering children. That is the politics, the politics of murder, to which the church is called to be an alternative. Herods must be resisted. But we, we must also not forget that the fear that possessed Herod's life is not absent from our own lives. All Jerusalem was also frightened by the news of the child's birth. And the same fear continues to possess cultures our culture, that believe they have no time or energy for children. Abortion is one of the names for that fear of time that children make real. Children rightly frighten us, pulling us as they do in the unknown future. But that pull is the lure of love that moves the sun and the stars. The same love that overwhelmed the wise men with joy is that love that makes the church an alternative to the world that fears the child. And we see in Matthew chapter 2 what happens when brokenness reigns, when sin seems to have the last word. The challenge for us today is to recognize that all people in all places are created in the image of God from conception to death. The church should be the place that lets people know that all children are precious from conception to death, that to 
eliminate the life of any child at any age or any person because, by the way, all of us in this room are still children of God. It's to no longer see the divine image in the other. And it's put ourselves in the judgment seat of God. And that should scare us all a little bit. And I didn't want to use that quote. I like the quote, but didn't want to use it because there's an obvious word that some of you probably is a trigger for some of us in this room. And I want to say this this morning. If we want to be the unique people of God, we must recognize that he extends grace abundantly beyond measure, unmerited, free gift of God, that love and mercy extend in all the places. And so I want to tell a story this morning because I, I get tired of hearing, honestly, I get tired of hearing old 70-year-old white men talk about abortion. Um, I get tired of it because they can't do it, period. But I also think they come at it from the wrong perspective. So I'll tell the story. When I was in college, a professor told the story because it was one of the most impactful moments for him in, in pastoral care and counseling. He, he shared the story. He was, he was a pastor, and this woman came to him, and she said, Pastor, uh, I, I need your help. I'm stuck in a crummy marriage. And so she looked at him, and, and he said, well, I want her to know she wasn't stuck in this marriage. She made this decision. And so I said, well, you're not stuck in marriage. He's like, well, you know, I, I had to get married. He goes, well, no, you didn't have to get married. You know, no one has to get married. We don't have a culture that requires that. She said, well, I, I was pregnant. And he said, well, again, you didn't have to get married. Like, that wasn't a choice you got to make in that. And she said, he said, well, you know, you, you could have chose to raise the baby on your own. You could have given the baby up for adoption. He says, honestly, you, you could have had an abortion. There were lots of options. She goes, no, I, Pastor, I couldn't do that again. He said, oh, no, you're right, you couldn't. He said, um. She said, do, do you think, um, you think God's got a special place for my baby? He says, oh, I I think God's got a special place for your baby. He said, do you, he said I, don't want, he just, I don't know what prompted me to ask these questions. I'm assuming the Holy Spirit said, so how old would your baby be? He said, five. He goes, oh, five. That's, that's a good age. Boy or girl? Girl. Now, do you, do you know that? or just, I, I, just, I just know. Did you have a name? Emily. He said, it's a good name. So, Pastor, you're sure, you're sure my, my baby is with God? He goes, ah, I have no doubt your baby's with God. You see, Pastor, this is, this is why I hate church. He said, excuse me? She said, how, how could I ever go to the place where my baby is if I'm the one to put her there? He says, oh, see, this is where you've got heaven wrong. Heaven is the place where your daughter is the first one to greet you. Heaven is the place where all wrongs are made right. And so they began to have conversation through counseling. It's a lot more time. She came to the place of recognizing that what had defined her life didn't have to define her life any longer. See, what I long for is for the church to be the place that when you're wrestling with her, you don't have to do because you're pregnant. Or honestly, in this room, I realize I hated telling this story because I know in this room, abortion has impacted many who are sitting in this room. You go, well, who? I can tell you this. The math works out in the church just like it does outside. 
And so I want you to know I believe in a God whose grace extends beyond what we could ever comprehend or imagine. That in this story, if we're not careful, we can miss the call in our own lives to go, what is it for us to not recognize that we are called to be image bearers of God and we're called to see all people as image bearers of God. We're called to see all people. So I want to say this to you this morning. If you want to be someone who advocates pro-life, then let's make sure we do it from birth to death and everything in between. Because anything less than that is not to see the divine image of God. And that I do think we're called to do. And then let's not forget the ultimate judge is not you or I, but it is God. And I say all that today to say this, we cannot live a life of God with us without full surrender of who we are and even what we believe. We can't pick and choose what matters most to us and think God's going to honor our life in that way because that's just not how God works. I would say this this morning, the Christian is the person who has ceased to do what they like and who has dedicated their life to do as Christ likes. So the question today is this, who is king of your life? Who controls your wallet, your family, your job, your stuff, your heart, your mind, what you watch, what you read, what you do? Who has control of those things? Who is king of your life, you or someone else? And if that someone else isn't Jesus, he invites us to complete and total surrender and submission. To say, I am yours. This invitation to lay down our entire life, everything that describes us, all that we are. And anything less than that is probably not enough. But the good news is when we lay ourselves down, he picks us All right, there, there are really kind of three main characters in this story today. I mean, we can kind of look past Jesus, right? Okay. But there's Herod, who's scared, who's angry, who's afraid, who's power hungry. He's hostile to Jesus. He's afraid of a child. And honestly, we're all Herods at one point if we're not careful, or we may even be right in this moment. We can be scribes and chief priests. We can be indifferent to Jesus. We can, we can try to make sure he fits our life in the narrative and the story that we want to fit our life. Or we can learn to live as the Magi, also known as wise men. And how do they live? They offer ourselves holy in worship to God. They kneel at the feet of Jesus and say, I am yours and I am here to worship you. And they give the best of that they have. I have good news for you and I today. Jesus invites us to his family, to his table, to come and be his unique people. He says to you and I, will you just trust me with all that you are? Will you fully surrender everything in your life to me? Will you give up your whole self to trust that I want you to be the best that you can? Will you live with new habits and new patterns and new ways of living 
Would you trust that you and I are called to be reflections of the divine image, and then we're called to see the divine image of God in all people, in all places, in all situations, and nothing less. And then, what we find is this, this invitation to new life, this transformation of who we have been, this changing of our heart, and it's this, like I said, I don't really love New Year's resolutions because I don't usually keep them, But I do believe this, that when you have begun to live out of new habits and new patterns of living, that God so changes your heart and your life that you do live and look differently. I'm all for new patterns and habits. And so I want to say this. I want to be a person who is shaped by the grace of God. I want to fully surrender my whole life and everything I am to him. And so I ask the question to you, are you fully surrendered to Jesus today? Have you given God your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength? Have you said, I am all yours. Everything I am is yours. Everything I have, everything I am, everything I want to be, I will trust my future, my present, and my past to you. And I will accept that your grace extends to me where I am, as I am, but you want to change me into something greater than I ever thought possible. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together today to be your unique people so radically defined by your hope and your grace and your mercy. That we might know we are desperately loved by you. That every person on the face of this earth is invited to be your child. We ask that you might help us to see people as a divine reflection of you. When we look at others, we would see your son, Jesus, as he commands us to do. We pray all of us in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.